Porter QI presents Quality for the Rest of Us with Gail Porter. Investigating the mysterious world of healthcare in search of adventurous innovation and exciting solutions from professionals across the nation. When we talk about risk, it often seems relative. What is risky for me is not necessarily risky for my best friend. I might be fine diving into a pool because I know how to swim. But if you don't know how to swim, that same action could be deadly. But if we are both on a boat in the ocean, you might be better off wearing a life jacket than I would be without one. Because even though I swim in a pool from time to time, it doesn't mean I can handle ocean waves for several hours if our boat sinks. That is one reason why a general statement about talking to your doctor to see if such and such is right for you is included with every dose of health advice. Likewise, what is risky for a grocery store may not be risky for a software company. And some things are risky in person when they are safe online, or vice versa. So when we talk about risk, it becomes clear that a personalized assessment can make a big difference. For example, a lot of companies moved their data to the cloud because they didn't have to worry then about a single hurricane destroying all the servers carrying all the data they ever had. Instead, they could build in resilience and store duplicate data on servers all over the world via the cloud, with redundancies and archive policies built into the architecture. So much safer. But this year, there was a curveball for healthcare companies that used offshore data storage in the cloud. The state of Florida announced that it would ban offshore health record storage, probably due to the constant onslaught of cybersecurity incidents in the healthcare sector. In fact, there were so many incidents that the FBI warned hospitals to be extra cautious this year. Suddenly, all the offshore vendors that conducted billing and coding services, for example, would no longer be allowed to view medical data that originated in Florida. In the blink of an eye, the strength of diversified data storage looked like a vulnerability to consumer interests and privacy. Since then, new security measures have been added specifically for healthcare storage in an effort to protect and lock vital data in the cloud. In this evolving scenario, it can be hard to tell what is at risk from what is reasonably safe. Between servers and virtual meetings, it's safe to say that the very nature of the virtual environment carries different risks than the physical environment. At a hospital, a nurse can assess the risk to a patient, and the data can be measured by a team of professionals. But the risks of the virtual environment are a little different and often revolve around security of information or barriers to contract fulfillment. And there can be lawsuits or fines associated with these risks. So how can healthcare professionals safeguard against these pitfalls in a landscape of constant change? What is the best way to handle risk in a virtual healthcare office? And if a risk is discovered, there are some questions to ask. Is there a workaround in place? Does the risk prevention plan depend on a person performing correctly every time, or does it have an automatic alert? Is there a built-in system control to prevent harm? Today, we're going to look at how to conduct a simple risk assessment with your team, with a simple scoring method to evaluate the strength of your prevention plans. Before we get started, I'd like to share that much of what I learned about risk management, I learned from parenting. I found myself telling my children that if they didn't get to bed at a decent time, they would be tired at school. 
Such natural consequences may be intuitive to adults, but for my children, I needed to explain. So I gave them two choices. One, you can learn from the wisdom of others who have made the mistake of staying up too late and are willing to share how and why they avoid doing that today. Or two, you can learn the hard way by making every mistake on your own and realizing later that those wise counselors were right all along when you get your test scores back and half of your friends are mad at you because you were cranky all day. That is to say, a lot of risk management is very intuitive. No one wants to learn the hard way at a facility that provides care to vulnerable patients. I would definitely vote for the easy way of learning every time because I don't want to look at a terrible case in retrospect and think of everything we could have done. But at the same time, addressing every risk that is possible could make you dizzy. And frankly, it's impossible. How do we choose what is most important right now? This is where the science of measuring how important something is or how effective a solution could be is a welcome advancement that I have gleaned from reading, listening to wisdom, and through the practice of risk assessment. I still have much to learn, and I continue to discover new ideas and approaches, but I have fallen in love with the idea of the simplest version that anyone can use. I love sharing things that can be done by anyone with a budget of zero, because I don't believe these ideas need to be expensive or confused by a lot of academic words and theories. Everyone uses risk management, even school-age kids who turn out their lamps at an appropriate bedtime are using risk management because they have a history test the next day. So let's talk about risk assessment. The first step is brainstorming a comprehensive list of risks. Depending on the size of your workplace, you will want to divide into work groups first and determine which groups are affected by similar processes and problems. This is not a strict science, so you could just ask managers to include whomever they think is relevant. Then gather together and brainstorm every risk that may have a legal impact, anything that could violate regulatory and compliance requirements or result in a contract violation. Next, zero in on customer impacts and anything that could result in the loss of major contracts. Finally, brainstorm all of the operations risks. This will be the longest one. Look for delays and staffing issues, technical barriers, and all the process or system errors that you can think of. Does your team run out of storage? Do materials get lost? Is staffing always short at the end of the year? Is there a disaster plan on file and do people know how to use it? Once this list is made, take time to do a quick review and look for duplicates. Combine ideas that are quite similar, but don't erase them. It's better to include the individual statements below in case they need to be separated again later. I also encourage the team to consider risks they are managing well, as we often focus on what is wrong and forget the things that we are already doing successfully. Asking a few questions about what they think is their strongest point or an area where they have never had problems could jog their memories to recall these tasks. Give the team a break then and schedule another meeting for scoring these risks, including the relevant team each time. Ethically, it can be tough to not influence scoring when asking questions because staff often look to the interviewer to provide clarification, but it's their work and not mine, and it should be their score and not my opinion of it. So it helps to prepare some prompting questions 
encouraging them to consider the worst-case scenario or to give you an example of the problem. Usually when they answer those open questions, they are able to provide the score when the problem has more context. Context that really only they can provide. For scoring, I love the Joint Commission's simple, easy-to-use risk matrix, which is used for evaluating safety at facilities. I use it for all kinds of risk assessments, and it can be adapted to be more specific to an organization. It can be easily found on their website under the acronym SAFER matrix, which stands for Survey Analysis for Evaluating Risk. The idea in this risk assessment is to ask about the frequency of a problem because daily problems score higher than an annual problem that you rarely have to worry about, and then ask what would be the severity of the problem if it happened. What would be the financial impacts? Do we cover for this problem all the time already? Frequency is scored from 1 to 5, and severity is also scored from 1 to 5, to get a total possible score of 10. It is really good to include the financial impact in this discussion, with specifics when available. Things like fines and jail time for HIPAA violations, for example, are a great way to show the value of quality assurance audits. This risk matrix is a fabulous way to count the value of preventing harm, giving credit for work that is often unnoticed unless it fails. Once the scoring is completed, there are thousands of options available for what can be done to further analyze or look for solutions. One of my favorite ways to make use of the risk scoring is to enter the risks with their scores in a spreadsheet and highlight the most elevated risk scores. Then pull those risks into the summary and begin to analyze the prevention systems that are already in place. I've talked a lot in the past about identifying problems and working through solutions and the evaluation as part of the quality cycle. But today I want to keep it simple and focus on the risk aspect of this process. For this summary, it is really effective to take these high-scoring risks and score them again. But this time, we are scoring for efficacy rather than risk itself. Ask your team about what they are doing to prevent the risk from happening, and then score it from 1 to 3 on how manual that process is. This is a great way to identify which risks have a system control in place and which ones are dependent on repeated education or staff reminders. Obviously, the staff reminders are very manual, but if you ask a team what their system controls are, they're going to look at you blankly and crickets will start playing. So ask about whether there is a system that takes care of all the problems for them or whether they have to do it all themselves. A score of one means it's fully manual, dependent on the individual, and human error makes it very vulnerable. A two would be where there's a clear protocol in place with some automation, but it still counts on a human component and a three would be fully automated system controls. Staff know the difference on whether something is automated or manual, and when you see automated, it can be translated to the type of system control. When it's manual, it's a big opportunity to build a system control and further analyze those opportunities. When you look at risk this way, at what solutions are most vulnerable to error, there are opportunities that just pop out at you like jewels in the rough. Often it is something simple like staff that are frequently disconnected from service or a process that depends on email and could become an automated ticketing system. Other times, it will take you directly into the operating room to see where exactly the cautery sits during procedures 
or checking the tag on the cord that plugs the sterilizer into the emergency electrical system, and interviewing staff about how much the door hangers for isolation gear might diminish HEPA ventilation. Honestly, those investigations are the recipe for a good time in my book, but I certainly wouldn't want to do all that hard work on every single problem that we face. It would be utterly overwhelming, and I would probably just hide in my office and not come out. That's why this process of scoring to narrow down what really matters and which items are truly vulnerable to error is so valuable. The other thing I've noticed is that it is so vastly different to talk about a potential error than to discuss one that already happened. There is so much emotion, feelings of loss, self-defense, grief, and worries about the unknown legal ramifications or the potential loss of a career. It is so very difficult to have transparent conversations in that setting. But it is conversely much easier to discuss hypothetical scenarios and get honest answers. They are eager to report that we don't really do it that way because of this other issue over here. People want to fix problems, but people don't want to be identified as the problem. The risk assessment is like a post-injury case where no one was injured and there are no ramifications except the potential for improvement. The other thing that comes from these discussions is that staff who may not have understood the why for an intervention may have a eureka moment where it clicks for them personally why we do these odd protocols. Most staff will tell you that it's important to get two patient identifiers before acting on a patient, or that it's necessary to wash our hands. But working backwards from the worst case scenario paints that picture in a completely different light and it can be very revealing for participants. When the risk assessment pulls on all the strengths of good storytelling and removes the emotional baggage of a wrongful death or injury, it frees participants to truly brainstorm about solutions. And since healthcare as an industry is facing many of the same harm events today as we were decades prior, I think it's time to look for ways to free the creativity of our frontline workers in an environment of risk prevention rather than under the threat of a potentially punitive action. Despite the persistent problems in healthcare, we do still see new problems. There are always new surgical interventions, novel treatments, and avant-garde technologies like artificial intelligence that challenge how we see our work. If we don't stop to consider how it affects our risk, we could miss major opportunities. That's why I would advise doing a risk assessment on an annual routine as we continue to press our limits and innovate in difficult situations. In the words of Ben Carson, quote, No matter how good you are at planning, the pressure never goes away. So I don't fight it. I feed off it. I turn pressure into motivation to do my best. End quote. The risk assessment process can place some pressure in just the right places to help your team thrive motivating your team to plan well and pass the test when things get difficult. Thanks for listening to Quality for the Rest of Us. If you found this episode helpful, please consider liking and subscribing so you'll be notified when future episodes come out. If you have thoughts or questions, you can email qforus at porterqi.com. And if you're interested in joining our community, visit porterqi.com. You'll find podcast archives, helpful articles, innovative tools, and a knowledgeable group of professionals just like you. That's porterqi.com. 
I hope to see you there.